The Big Light presents Hello, I'm Sean McDonald. You're listening to Blethered, and my guest is BBC investigative journalist Miles Bonner. Miles recently won a gold award for best news coverage at the ARIA Awards in London for an expose into a so-called pickup artist operating in Glasgow, which led to the individual being jailed for two years and placed in a sex offenders register for ten. What followed was Miles going undercover and posing as a student at a pickup artist boot camp in London before confronting the organisers and what they were doing. We talk about how these groups came to Miles' attention in the first place and the logistics of carrying out an undercover expose, the ramifications of putting your head above the parapet in such a way, and we also chat about Miles' BBC Sounds podcast, Unlocked, which focuses on how people are coping during lockdown. If you enjoy this episode, feel free to share it and don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Cheers. So, Miles, before we discuss the landmark milestones in your career, let's go back to your origins in journalism. What was your career starting point yeah well for, for me i um you know i suppose quite late to it i kind of fell into it i, I was a, a history graduate i did history at uh, sterling university and after finishing my degree i was really keen to to actually get a you know a degree in journalism so i applied for courses and um, got into the University of Chester to do a master's in journalism and I headed down to the northwest of England already geared up to start this course um, with my you know my girlfriend at the time she was yeah, she got into University of Manchester to do history as a master's and the course got cancelled they pulled the plug on it and I ended up finding myself kind of stranded in Manchester without this course that I'd moved there for. And all my mates were either in Inverness or in Glasgow. So I was like, ah, oh, you know. So I um, decided to try and get into another university through clearing. And I had to go to this like open day at uh, Salford University. And I didn't, <laughs> I didn't get in. <laughs> oh, no. There was, there was like a kind of uh, questionnaire test thing at the end of the day. And obviously, <laughs> they didn't like my answers. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I ended up stuck in Manchester. I worked in All Saints clothes shop, um, which you know was fine. Uh, and I also worked uh, in after school care. So like, you know, helping. Uh, basically, I would just play football with mm. um, like kids before school and after school. You know, you know these kind of like. It, it, you look after kids for like an hour after school until the parents finish yeah. work or whatever. So I was just juggling that and working at All Saints, um, which was kind of not um, how I'd kind of seen moving to, to Manchester to pan out. And then 
uh, I applied for a job as a recruitment consultant, and it, I, you know I got I got a job as a recruitment consultant. At the time, I loved it because I was so skint, you know, that I was just like, thank God that I've got something that I can mm. actually like pay my bills. And I ended up doing that job for, I think it was three years, which is you know wild thinking about so it. So what? What age would you have been then at the time that you've you've actually come into journalism? I'm sure you're about to tell that, but I'll just move that along anyway. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I would have been, I think that would have been 2010 when I left uni. So I would have been 23, I think. Mm. And then I would have done that job until I was, you know, mid 20s, maybe 26. And then what happened was I managed to get a move to a, a rail office in Glasgow, and you know it was a it was a great it was a great job. The guys I worked with were great fun and class. But this uh, work experience uh, opportunity came up at the BBC. So I went for a week. I took my holidays. Uh, I took a week off work. Went and worked in the phone-ins. It was called Morning Call at the time. Um, and, I, you know, it was my favourite radio show at the time. I was like, right, I'm going to mm-hmm. go and try and get a, a, you know, a shift in the phone-ins. I did that for a week. And then I got offered three weeks off the back of that and that would have been 2014 and I quit 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 my job and just took the three weeks at the BBC and that yeah that would have been yeah, early to mid 2014 and I've been there since you know a mm-hmm. uh, couple of freelance shifts then turns into a contract and then you just start kind of working your way into the building so it was mm-hmm. a really kind of unorthodox way of getting into journalism but i kind of got there in a roundabout way eventually you know aye Um, quite an exciting time as well to be part of of to be in glasgow and in the bbc and one of the major news and cultural hubs in terms of reporting because obviously we had the commonwealth games regeneration of the city was it just buzzing then i take it it it, it was you know there there was there was no doubt that you know we knew the kind of the gravity of just how monumental all the things that were happening at the time were. You know, even then, I was I was a you know a researcher on a phone-in program. Um, everything was just so um, just so exciting. You know, you point point you know yourself. You know that time was just mm. it just felt like there was a different thing happening every single week. And as we know, you know it wasn't just the you know independence referendum in 2014. It was you know general elections and referendums and everything else that came after that so mm-hmm. it, it's it's honestly just been like a you know a, a snowball effect since kind of joining it's just moved from kind of one different part of program into the next and they just keep these huge events just keep happening political or as we're seeing now pandemic related it's just the yeah. media never stops like it seems to me anybody or not anybody i'll rephrase that it seems to me there are a lot of people who go into journalism just because it's something they see that I'll do that after school, I'll go and study at uni and then they'll maybe do certain jobs but there, there isn't maybe a real passion for it or a real love and I think sometimes it's reflected in their output or the way in which they do their job. As we all go on to, you've done some pretty unique um, projects, let's call them. Did, have you always had the inclination to tell stories or to frame a point in ways that other people will understand we are trying to get across? Because what I'm just trying to understand is for you to go and pursue that not later in life, but in your mid-twenties or whatever. It is unorthodox in that sense. People don't usually do that. Yeah, well, I think, there's a, I suppose there's a few parts to it. You know, 
being um, really into history, I suppose I've always liked the kind of building up a, a narrative through, you know, primary and secondary sources. So, you know, speaking in a history kind of way, mm -hmm. that, that's the way you kind of tell your story or sell what you think happened is by laying out, you know, the facts that you have, whether they be, you know, from someone's first person account or what someone has, you know, got through a secondhand source. And, um, yeah, definitely stories. You know, I, I completely agree with that. I think I'm really interested in, you know, finding out, you know, I suppose what makes people tick. Also find out kind of the strange things that we find, especially online. I, I must admit I've got a real interest in stories that kind of originate from the kind of ever-moving world that we're in where you know, social media and how much of our lice we put out there. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's just a complete, it's kind of like uncharted territory, even though there's so many stories come from online. I just feel those kind of, you know, I was some about the pickup artist story, like the fact that it's like this community that communicate online and it's born there and it just grows and grows and grows. I really like those types of stories. Mm. And, um, you know, in terms of influences as well, I think most people would say like watching Louis through in the 90s and stuff was inspiring, but also like John Ronson. Like I'm a massive fan of John I Ronson. I love actually. John Ronson. He's just, he's just amazing. It's like he, man he manages to use his anxieties or, you know, his perceived anxieties to get more information out of people. And mm -hmm. he, he's quite, he's quite kind with it as well. He can, he can kind of get better stories out of people by just being a bit human and not mm -hmm. being a robot. Um, so yeah, I do think it's it's a bit of really loving history, but also you know stories. It's all about stories, isn't it? Yeah. So as you alluded to there about the the pickup artist thing, so we'll we'll kind of explain to the listener. In early twenty nineteen, you released a documentary in BBC Panorama. Correct me if I'm wrong at any point here. Uh, and there was also a series of videos made for BBC social media channels in which you went undercover as a student of pickup artists in London, and you also documented one in Glasgow. I've got so many questions and I actually don't know where to start but what I suppose we can do is if you can explain in your own words what a pickup artist is and how these people came onto your radar and then I suppose we'll, we'll take it for there and try and unpack that yeah well a, a pickup artist or a so-called pickup artist yeah is someone that um learns and deploys certain kind of manipulative techniques in order to seduce a woman hmm. for example now there obviously there are you know female pickup artists but you know if you start to delve into that world normally it's to drive male clients mm -hmm. now what they they do and this is like obviously a very basic way of looking at it but you know since the the 80s you had you know people like Ross Jeffries who would use certain things that you can do in order to progress things with a woman and part of that is just approaching as many people as possible and using different techniques to try and seduce them. Um, that obviously moved on in the mid noughties. Um, you know, a lot of people will have heard of or read The Game and that's, you know, Neil Strauss's The Game. That's kind of what took this subculture and moved it into the complete mainstream. You know, you start seeing it on late night American TV shows and um, you know, even having its own series. I think it was called The Pickup Artist, which was, you know, this pickup artist mystery taking these 
eight guys who weren't very lucky with love and showing mm. them what to do. And what it has kind of changed into, you know, even though a lot of the kind of more sinister stuff ha does have roots in that early days of pick apart, it has kind of moved into a much more, it, it's like a kind of, it's an industry which has lost even more of its morals, if it had any to begin with. Mm -hmm. It's very much about, you know, turning um, women into numbers, approaching as many people as possible and using things, different manipulative techniques to try and, you know, sleep with them effectively. Mm. And, you know, any, any pickup artist that says, oh, no, it's not about sleeping with people or, you know, it's about building confidence, which you will hear from, you know, even the pickup artists that we investigated. But then the language you start to hear obviously makes the real reason become a lot clearer. You know, things like SDL, you know, counting your same day lays, um, looking people, um, you know, regarding women as targets, trying to get as many cold approaches as possible, which is effectively just approaching someone without knowing them and stopping them and, you know, you know, regardless of how much they don't want to speak to you or resist that, it's about overcoming that anxiety and, and maintaining the conversation, which mm. they see as like kind of sharpening their skill set in order to become better seducers. So I've probably went on a kind of long <laughs> explanation no, it's, of what it's it is. great though to explain it all. Yeah, so that 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 is it. It's very much. It's it's some will say it's about improving confidence in people and. Maybe some do gain a lot of confidence from it, but from what I've seen and what we've investigated, it's about sex and mm. um, money. It's about getting people to pay for boot camps so you can teach them what to do and start charging hundreds of pounds, if not thousands of pounds. Yeah, from, from top to bottom, that whole thing just seems psychopathic to me because it's people like learning and practicing how to appear sophisticated or like socially capable, like this weird veneer instead of just being a genuine person and showing a genuine interest in other people. And the whole approaching as many people thing, I've never understood that. I've known people that have said that and like in my life, they'd say, not pals of mine, but people would say, well, if I approach 20 and, and one says yes, and again, that seems to me to be psychopathic as if you're just not having any emotion to or any... I don't know any emotional reaction to the embarrassment, like the embarrassment of that. Like if I, I feel like if I was in a bar and I really overtly like over the top went and approached somebody and they just flat out were like, no, I would say, all right, okay, just back in a minute. And I would go outside and whether it was concrete, steel or soil, I would manage to dig a hole. I would get in it and I would cover myself up and I'd never get out. I'd be mortified. So I don't know how the fuck you could just walk around a bar just doing this. Well, I'm sure everybody in the bar is also kind of aware of like what is going on. It's just, uh, it gives me the creeps. I suppose the other thing as well is like, you know, that that is uh, an embarrassing thing to do as a guy and they, they're able to do it as, as so many times. You know, we're talking into the hundreds of cold mm. approaches that these guys will try and do, that it desensitizes themselves from those awkward situations. You know, they'll pick up artists, will um, document, you know, usually by a hidden camera, chatting up to someone, someone's daughter while, while they're still present. You know, one of the people we investigated prided themselves on kind of it stopping a father and young daughter 
and trying to get her number while this guy was raging about it. And these uh. social situations, you know, we would be like, what, what is, what is that person doing? But that's, that is kind of like, it's like, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, they, they, they wear it like a badge of honor. You know, that's mm. the guy that was able to do that. This guy's got X amount of approaches. This guy has, you know, hundred same delays and as they pride themselves on those numbers. And yeah, the other thing as well is, you know, it's so deceiving and deceitful to, to that, that woman, you know, say that the, the mm -hmm. woman is attracted to you and she is liking the chat. She doesn't know that you've tried to do that with 20 other women that night mm -hmm. and it changes the whole complexion. Well, I think it does that, you know, they think they're this person that's been stopped because there's nothing wrong with like chatting someone up. But yeah. when you add it to this whole, like you've been doing it all day with a group of guys who are listening in your conversation sometimes, and you're deploying all these things to try and seal the deal. It's a different, you know, it's a, mm -hmm. it's a different game. Surely the whole hidden camera thing is is dubious from a legal perspective. Like you can't really be filming people without their knowledge or consent, or can you? Yeah, it's it's it is a tricky one. Um, you know, in in terms of when when it's public, there isn't much you, you can do about it legally. Uh, what a lot of pickup artists will do, they'll film from afar and then they'll blur the person's face and they'll mm. see that as a kind of, oh, we're protecting this person's identity. When it comes to conversations, you know, it's a legal gray area as well, but, you know, there, there's something just not right about that. No, you know, I the, think... The whole weekend that I was uh, undercover, people were getting mic'd up constantly and, you know, two people at a time were listening into this conversation that was happening... Mm -hmm you know, 50 yards away. And this woman has no idea that there's all these guys listening in. Um, that, you know, it's a, it's a breach of privacy, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose I... when it gets a lot more clean cut is when people start filming in bedrooms, which um, depressingly, that is something that's very common amongst pickup artists is setting up cameras and filming uh, sexual acts or recording the audio at least and posting it online to show, you know, to prove that they're having sex with people. Mm -hmm. And that might, is no. a problem legally. Yeah, this might be something that would maybe cause a wee bit of contention amongst people listening. If they are listening in, who would define themselves as pick-up artists? But I'm only calling it as I see it, and I'm not saying it in an unkind way, but just merely an observation. But there never seems to be, you know, when any any time you see any of these people in the, the, the um, documentary that you did, or in any other things that I've seen online, there's never anyone you'd look at and go, he seems like a normal sort of conventionally attractive, decent guy. There's always a real seedy, strange, I don't know, is it people that are on the periphery of society that, that go after that go into these things? Do you do you have a an idea like a, do you have a thought on that? I think uh, I think I might have had a thought before we started on, on, on making that film. And then the more you dig into it you realise that it could be it could be anyone mm. um i do think you will find a common characteristic that the the people that will go towards that sort of thing are looking for some sort of belonging like to be part of a group almost mm. see themselves as like you, you know you know in in fight club they kind of break themselves away from society and they become this group mm -hmm. you know well 
interestingly, like the, the mid noughties with the kind of those pickup artists that became world famous because of the book, the game, mm. one of them was called Tyler Durden, who is, you know, the alter ego of Edward Norton's the narrator in Fight Club. Yeah. And there is very there is a tie into that. You know, I think a lot of pickup artists see themselves as outliers and people that are kind of they're going against what society want you to do. But from just the types of people that were on the course um, with myself when I was undercover and, you know, others that, that I've seen while investigating this, um, you know, program for how many months it was, there was some guys that seemed, you know, a little bit lost and seemed relatively nice that were, you know, these, these are not the pickup artists these are the students that are trying to mm -hmm. learn um, these techniques. There were some that, you know, you could define as creepy. And there was others that had, you know, pretty respectable, you know, occupations. You know, one was a GP. There was a doctor on the, on, the, on, the, on the course I was on. I suppose um, then a bit of like that, that mixed sort of demographic could then, as you're kind of saying, could come down to people seeking belonging, but then also not fully understanding what they're getting into. Because if you've got someone who's saying, no, no, this isn't, this isn't for anything uh, very seedy. This is us to help you to speak to women. And, you know, they might just be, I don't know. It's very hard for me to, to, to put myself in that position to understand, but I do want to try and understand why they would do it. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I do think there are people that will go on these courses and be like, "What? What have I done? Why have I gone on this?" Mm -hmm. um, you know, th there was there was one guy on the course that I was on who I I don't think had a very good experience. Um, mm -hmm. I think he'd spent a lot of money and didn't get anything out the weekend and didn't seem particularly happy with what was going on. Um, and I know that people have been in touch with me um, since the film went out in October, outlining that they've had experiences where they've gone on other boot camps and they've just been shocked by what's happened. So yeah. you're right, there are people that will have gone to these things. The, the only times I get suspicious is, is, is if they're interested or have seen the back catalogue of these pickup artists and have already watched their YouTube channels mm -hmm. because, you know, you only need to watch... I watched them all, but you only need to watch some of their videos. You know, you could probably spend half an hour going through some of the clips and you would realise what they're all about. And you would be expecting the boot camp to be um, degrading to women or misogynistic. Mm. Um, and I then maybe gasped. some don't watch. Yeah. I gasped at one of the clips um, that you have, and it was when, and from what I could see, it looked as if you were outside uh, the South Bank Centre. Is that where you were doing it? Where you were filming down in, in, in London. London, yeah, yeah, yeah. We we're, were on. Um, so the, these are all kind of hot spots in London that a lot of pickup artists use. But we we're on Regent Street, Oxford Street, and Embankment, and yeah. Trafalgar Square. They're the kind of main ones, and the Strand. The one, the one at Embankment, and a guy says to you, um, "I will go and we'll." We'll go into more detail how this all came about and all that, but I just wanted to pick up on this before I forget it. The guy says, go and speak to her. There's a target. And you said, no, 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 come on. She looks underage. Can you pick someone else? And he said, ah, it doesn't matter if she's underage. Just go and talk to her. And I actually went, oh, 
Like I cannot believe he's just like he's just said that. Why? I mean, why I'm surprised because he's hard. These people hardly seem to be the fucking bastions of morality and uh, like decency. But I was still like really taken aback. I mean, did you find that to be a common thing that it was just female and that's it? Yeah, and and um, I would say it was a common thing that you would they would aim for young people, and obviously since the film you know before the film going out and after they deny that but you know mm-hmm. from my experience um the younger in terms of you know picking out people that were questionably or, or, or that you were unsure if they were old enough or not would be the sort of woman they would go for or girl because they're less likely to resist your mm-hmm. advancements um and that is definitely something that was a, a kind of common theme to the weekend. You go younger, and they're less likely to tell you to fuck off. Mm-hmm. And it's quite it's, it's a scary thing. That's you're teaching that to a group of men who, you know, it's, it's not excusing them, but maybe you know, if they think that's right, and then they go and do that. You know, obviously, anyone that thinks that you know targeting young women could be right is is Need their head checked anyway, but yeah, a lot of these men could be very easily influenced, and that's something they're saying, you know. And and even on even on the week, the kind of times I had with those coaches, where I, you know, kind of one on one when they were chatting away to me throughout the weekend, sometimes they would say, you know, even if you think they're younger, always say nineteen, because if she thinks that you know that she's less than nineteen, then she'd be like, why are you talking to me? Mm-hmm. And you know, and they're already they know very well that you're going to be approaching or being asked to approach younger women. Um, so yeah, it's very it's it's, it's sketchy to say yeah. the least. That's twisted. There's actually I've noticed this is a wee bit off topic, but I've noticed in social media over the last couple of weeks there's been a bit of a. I don't know what you would call it a scandal that's engulfed the seems to be the British wrestling scene and certain alternative nightlife scenes like the cat house and stuff like that in Glasgow are people sharing stories about being targeted by older guys when they're 12, 13, 14 and some of it has been, as if I've seen it pop up, it's been uncomfortable reading and has been utterly horrendous as you say if you're targeting or you're going after people that are a lot, lot younger than you or are children you need your fucking head checked and I think the police need to be having a word with you um, to go all the way back again then what what motivated you to do that in the first place or how did you become aware that, that these people were operating and that they were an issue um, well I'd, I'd been aware I'd been aware of the you know the game and game and so called pick up art since the kind of mid noughties um, or I hate to say it, people hate the word noughties don't they mid 2000s <laughs> and um I came across the the story about Addie A game. That was in um, October 2018. Mm. So there was a there was a phone call into a radio program. It was the the Key Adams program actually. Um, it came in about you know four minutes before the news, so it was only it was a very quick call. And this woman, who ended up you know becoming part of the story, the whistleblower. Um, Rita, she phoned in saying, you know, there's this guy I go to college with and he's posting all these sorts of things on YouTube and I'm kind of concerned about it. 
So uh, I got past that, that, that clip and uh, I was working at the social at the time and I'd kind of worked my way from like phone-ins into um, radio news and then into uh, digital. So I'd kind of gone through the newsroom and then into the digital team. And when this story came up about a YouTube pickup artist, um, mm -hmm. it was passed on to myself, you know, thinking that I would be interested in that. So I went on to the YouTube channel and I'm trying try to remember correctly. I think there was like 256 videos on it. I know that's a very specific number, but I'm pretty sure that was it. <laughs> and went on there, and there was a lot of a lot of stuff on that channel, which I thought a lot of questions should be asked about. Um, mainly recordings, what seemed to be secret recordings of women during sex, and there was three videos that had that. Uh, there was more that had audio, but there was three in particular that I thought were in breach of YouTube's guidelines. Mm -hmm. So I started digging into who the person was behind it, and it was this guy who goes by A Game, Adnan Ahmed, and he ran this this group of seduction coaches or whatever um, called DWLF, uh, DWLF. Sorry. So when Got in, got in contact with him, asked to do an interview. Um, he wouldn't do one. Um, I asked again. This went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, so much so that we got to, I think it was mid-December, and he said he wasn't doing an interview. So after that, I contacted YouTube, asked them about these videos, and they immediately deleted them and said that they breached the guidelines. We then submitted like a right reply to get a statement from, and I was ready to publish on, it was January the 9th. So we put out this video on uh, in January and through the social, which I think the video was called Who Is A Game back then? And it, you know, it just exploded on Twitter. We could not believe how how big it went. What um, I was going to, just to, to quick, quickly yeah, jump in there then on that and, and then please just keep explaining because I'm loving this. So my understanding at the time of the type of content, uh, content sorry, that the social was putting out was like light-hearted. There's always a cheery wee jingle and it's just, you know, it's nothing too serious. So when I started watching this and it's explaining about this pickup artist who immediately seemed dangerous, I literally, I think I went, mate, what the fuck? Why are they promoting this? And then I realised, like, you know, what it was, and it, I, it completely exploded. I think some of the YouTube videos were still up at that point because I went and had a wee look at them, and they were they were pretty disturbing. But sorry, on you go. I saw it exploded, and and then what came as a result? Yeah, well, it, I think that's a really good point. To be honest, you know, I'd I'd uh, I'd been working at Good Morning Scotland for some time before I made the move to to the social, and you know. Anthony, who who helped start the social, who is the kind of digital lead at the BBC, he was very keen that we started doing kind of news stories, mm. and and they've got such a great, like a, a really good attitude about you know trying to take on loads of different things, um, and I could see why maybe people were like, whoa, you know, it was, it was a kind of change of pace, but yeah, um, I, I'd moved there because they were, you know, very ambitious about kind of covering more newsy stuff 
Um, so that was a great opportunity, being able to do that. And, you know, it might have been a surprise to see that sort of content go out, but it was an absolute shocker to see just how mm. crazy it went. It was like, I think it had 1.6 million views in the first day. Wow. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was crazy. Um, people were getting touched saying that, you know, this had happened to them, that they knew them. Uh, then two days later, the police arrested them. It was the 11th. Yeah. Two days later. Um, and that's when things, you know, really stepped up. Mm -hmm. You know, you start seeing it on report in Scotland and um, all of a sudden a kind of four minute video on, you know, what what would normally be maybe a, a more kind of positive and um, a development platform getting mm -hmm. to put a story out like that. It just turned into something so much bigger and obviously even became a half hour investigative documentary in the end. Did the police come and speak to you, or did they just go based on the reports that they had? Like, because obviously that it was that that brought it to their attention overall. I would say. Yeah, um, I, I, I was. Yeah, I was. I was interviewed uh, by the police. Um, you know, the video was part of their evidence, but the way the court case actually panned out was that the, the video didn't actually become evidence so the court case was based on it's called a section 38 which is behaving in a, an abusive and threatening manner mm -hmm. and that was what the, the the crowd had built their case on so it was it was mainly about you know the, the making a kind of reasonable person feel really uncomfortable and that mm -hmm. relied on witnesses coming forward um so although at first it was looking like I was going to be a witness and the video would be a large part of the case. They decided that they would go on these these Section 38 charges. Mm -hmm. the, the guy who was the main focus of it, so as you say, he was Charles Napier at Glasgow Sheriff Court um, and he was found guilty of acting in a threatening and abusive manner towards five girls between May 2016 in November last year. Let's call it a hunch. I'm going to say there's a lot more than that um, based on everything I've seen. You know, a lot more victims, um, but obviously they haven't come or they haven't come forward for whatever reason. So, or they came forward and those charges didn't progress. To... Right, right, okay, yeah. Okay. Um, I think I think when the case started, there were, uh, I think there was twelve charges. Right, okay, um, and they were reduced to five. So, um, which is quite a common thing. I think the the, the teams, uh, the legal teams, kind of knock charges down as the case mm -hmm. goes on. Um, and, and the video, you know, in terms of filming someone without consent, you know, which yeah. would be under the Communications Act, that didn't factor at any point in the case. The if there is any ambiguity for anybody as to whether this expose was in the public interest, let's say, because you might have people that will go, "Oh, come on, the guy's just trying to get fired in or whatever." No, it's a lot more serious than that. I think the details for the court case show that it was justified and necessary because you cannot have people doing that unimpeded. Um, first of all, for the safety of young women, but also for his, because eventually somebody's going to take matters into their own hands, and uh, especially in a place like Glasgow. The uh, some of the de I've got the details of the court case here, right? So, one of the women, aged twenty-one, 
uh, broke down in court when she described how the defendant followed her through Glasgow City Centre in 2016 when she was 18. As if that isn't scary enough. She said, he tried to pull me close to him so he could kiss me. So I pushed him away. He put his hand on my cheek and another hand on my back and pulled me in. He had pure lust in his eyes. Um, further details, the court heard the defendants also, sorry, the defendant also approached two schoolgirls aged 16 and 17 in a secluded lane in the small town of Uddingston. The 17-year-old told jurors that he made her feel uncomfortable ask, after asking if she was at school. Fucking alarm bells. And had a boyfriend. He then asked if I was married as I was wearing a ring, but not on my wedding ring finger. I said no and walked away. He asked my number and wanted to know if I wanted to go for coffee. I said no. I think he then accused the same girl of racism for knocking him back, which is it's a whole other conversation, but that is just, fuck it, that is wild. Is your mattress making noises it never used to? Or is it sagging? causing you to then it's time to get a new one get the best sleep at the best value with the nectar mattress prices start at just 499 dollars and you get 399 dollars in accessories thrown in a 365 night home trial and a forever warranty go to nectarsleep.com yeah i i think some people could could look at you know, some people will look at the case and, and and say, you know, not even look at this case, but look at the things that pick aparts are doing and say, you know, what is stopping someone really a problem? I suppose in this instance, you know, the jury found that it was intimidating enough that it would call cause a reasonable person mm-hmm. to be a kind of alarmed and, and worried about their you know their own well being. But, you know, I've had I've had loads of people uh, come get in touch with me since the film went out completely re- enraged about the documentary and that you know this is meaning that people can't approach anyone anymore and you know tell them that I, I get you would be so surprised at how many people think that this yeah. is just you know that behavior has just been made out to be wrong and it's actually there's nothing wrong with that see, see that see it's, somebody it's not saying... quite understanding yeah somebody saying what so we can't approach women and it's like mate see if you fucking terrify them and you're getting charged for it then no you can't like if that's what you define as stopping a woman i would define stopping somebody first of all don't be a fucking weirdo if somebody's in tesco or somebody's walking down the street or somebody's minding their own business you don't have just have the divine right to just walk up to them and speak to them and say what what i was i was only having a chat i think if if you think that's normal then you want to get your head checked that's really outrageous. So people have honestly got in touch with you and said, "What? Well, so, so we we can't approach anybody. You know, it, there's there's nothing wrong with that. That is just astounding. I'm just I'm getting angry and I'm becoming incoherent now. <laughs> no, no, it's uh, yeah, no. I've uh, I've had a lot of people get in touch with me. You know, it's mainly on Twitter and they don't have their face on on the actual yeah. profile. They have yeah, it's quite a common thing. If it's anything to do with that, they don't show their face, but. Yeah, people thought it was a kind of crime against just natural, yeah, I suppose, kind of behaviour and dating and all that. But you know, I don't know. I, I don't know how anyone could watch the film that we made, um, you know, disclosure and the panorama, and think mm-hmm. that's what we were doing. You know, yeah. we we were showing 
different types of people listening in on conversations without consent, filming people in really intimate situations without them knowing, or what appeared to be without them knowing, yeah. and basically just deploying tactics which completely blur the lines of consent. Mm -hmm. You know, for for anyone that's seen the film, there was a, there's a, a term that is used a lot by pickup artists or seduction coaches or whatever they want to be called, um, called LMR. And it stands for last minute resistance. And this is something that these guys think women put up as a token amount of resistance before sex, a way of saying, no, 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 I don't want this to happen, but they actually do. That's the way they frame it. And, <laughs> you know, hell. it just, when you hear it being, being kind of taught, you're like, what is, what is going on? Um, you know, this is just bonkers. And mm. anyone to see that and go, you know, you're just trying to, you're just trying to end natural kind of guy meets girl, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> it, it, there's no correlation between those two things. You know, one well, is trying to manipulate someone into having sex. The other is just part of life. You go to a pub or a bar or you meet someone and you just get the crap with them. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's a big difference between deploying people into a city and listening in on their every conversation and giving them feedback notes when they come back. So, yeah, yeah to me, it's very clear what the difference is, but some don't see that. Yeah, I would agree. It's a clear distinction. And the guy who was then prosecuted, he's been placed, he was jailed for two years. Uh, and has been placed on the sex offenders register for 10 years. So that is certainly not the outcome of a harmless and legal pastime. Um, it's messed up. So then as a result of that, are they, the the effectiveness of that or the impact, is that then when you're commissioned to, to go down to London? Like how did that come about? Yeah, so um, BBC Scotland's investigations team are working to do more on this and you know just uh, you know I was, I was very like lucky to, to being able to be allowed to kind of continue with that story so I was able to leave the social for a period of time to mm -hmm. go on attachment to the investigations team which is just like you know I'd, BBC Disclosure is just such a, a great they're such a great team and such um, you know the films they make are just uh, excellent so it was a, an honour to get to go there and what we did was we went through all the videos again and found that Adnan Ahmed, A-game, had been coached or had been to a boot camp with this company called Street Attraction. And Street Attraction um, was run by these you know, two guys from London and the kind of natural step was, let's go and see what's taught there. You know, we'd seen what... Adi or Adnan Ahmed had experienced on his YouTube channel because he filmed the whole thing, him going down there, approaching people, then filming them from afar. Um, but we thought, right, we should go and experience that sort of boot camp. Um, now, to, to do anything like that um, for the BBC, it takes uh, a long time. You've got to build up so much research and evidence to justify why you're doing something like this. In, like you said before, there is obviously a, a public interest aspect mm -hmm. to this, um, and also that you need to kind of prove that there is, you know, a significant amount of evidence to say that this is antisocial behaviour or potentially criminal behaviour. And once you get all that 
signed off and you prove that there's enough evidence that if you are to go undercover and go on one of these courses you're gonna you're gonna uncover wrongdoing uh, or antisocial behavior so it was a long process but we got there and i was able to go um down to to london and start a, a two-day boot camp two nine-hour days um with a with equipped with a, a camera in uh, my jacket and uh, yeah that was that was it was some experience something that you, know, you never think you're ever going to get yeah the chance to do or how you'll react in that situation but you know obviously that the, the disclosure team have people that are like well versed and extremely experienced in, in these types of covert recording mm. uh, investigations so you always feel a lot you know a, you know reassured that the advice you're getting is going to going to help you and and at no point do you really feel unsafe you know at the end of the day i wasn't going into a gangland or a war zone it was mm -hmm. it was a bunch of guys teaching um questionable techniques so there was no kind of worries on that front about going and doing it but there were concerns about like you know all this work we had done you know interviews with um academics and lawyers and case studies you, you don't want to you don't want to fuck it up mm -hmm. basically Aye. um so yeah I, I went to london did two days of this boot camp wearing a camera um and it was yeah it was wild i i didn't expect it to experience as much as we did you know we ended up using so much of the undercover in the film because there was just so much said mm -hmm. and done during that weekend the one thing i will say about it was um the weather was not helpful it was like 26 degrees and the jacket i had was like designed for like a winter operation <laughs> I had like this quilted jacket on, so I was like pissing sweat the whole weekend, <laughs> you know. And, and guys are like, you know, do you don't want to take your jacket off? And I'm like, no, I'm fine. It gives me confidence and all that oh, stuff. Oh god! Right, so you're um, preparing for like, a, was it March then? So you're preparing for a day out in Glasgow and really, and it's absolutely roasting down south. Oh, it was roasting. Like uh, it was so warm, and eventually I had to take it off. I had to kind of have it on my arm. Mm -hmm. So that was still, I was still able to film. Um, so like, had to kind of position the jacket. But um, the whole time you're just thinking, Christ, what am I going to do now? Um, and you're drinking so much water as well, you know, because well, that was another thing. At no point are you hungry. You know, everyone was eating and stuff. I, I couldn't, couldn't eat. And um, you're just drinking loads of water and just worrying about, you know, everything yeah. working. Yeah, it was a real... It was a real eye-opening experience, and also felt like I've just delved into something I've would never expected to have done as a, mm -hmm. as a journalist. Like no matter how yeah. well versed you are, or well prepared, um, or comfortable, there is always going to be that element of stress. Obviously, that you're that you're talking about, just making sure everything's working. And you were also nearly caught a couple of times. Was that like they were rooting around in your jacket to try and help you, or to try and fit you with a camera? Were they not? And then almost yeah, found your camera. Yeah, they were trying to fit. Um, they were trying to fit my jacket with a mic so that they could listen into my conversations, as you know, I was being instructed to approach people. Mm -hmm. um, they just so happened to like not let me. They weren't letting me put it on myself, and they were just rooting around in my pocket, mm -hmm. which had 
my device in it. And your heart rate's you know, through the it, roof. Yeah, my, my my head's just thinking, you know, I, I, this, this is it. I'm about to be found out. So I'm going to have to get my, you know, you have to get your questions ready and how you're going to confront the person. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily, didn't find it. My, my glasses case was covering it. Right. So it didn't actually touch it. And then there were a few times, but the other time I remember was going into the British Museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were, the, the main entrance was shut off and you had to enter through the back, which they'd set up a temporary security tent. And every second person, they were getting to take their jacket off and they were emptying all the pockets out. Mm. So I see this like, this queue and everyone getting their stuff emptied and I'm in a group of six. I would have been seven at that point. And I'm just like, fuck, this is it. You know, this guy's going to empty my jacket in front of everyone. And it just so happened not to check me. So there was there was these times, you know, something like throughout the day you forget that you're doing it. You don't, don't forget it, but you, you definitely relax a bit, mm-hmm. a lot more and you think, right, I'm into the flow of this now. And then every now and then something like that happens. You know, even like trying to get like a breather and going to the toilet for a bit. Sometimes they would just come in the toilet with you, follow you in. You know, you're just like, you know, not not needing to go to the toilet or anything. They're just in there chatting away to you. So mm. there was loads of these moments where I was just like, um, this this is just too much. Um, but then by the time, you know, the day also flies in because because you're just riding on your nerves the whole time. It's over before you know it. Mm. Um, but yeah, See, no, there was a, a couple of close calls for sure. There was so then obviously comes a time when you do confront confront them and you you, you run up with the the cam. I suppose you had a cameraman with you and you would have had the big mic. So one thing yeah. I noticed, like, see when you watch like a high stakes investigation or like an intense interview or like confrontation or something, you always expect no matter who it is, you just naturally expect this Louis Theroux style calmness. But obviously the reality is that you're going to feel a whole range of like emotions and probably adrenaline. Like as you're running up, like what what are you feeling? Like what are you thinking as you're going to ask the question? Oh, it's like yeah, th- this was something I actually needed. It was it was great to get advice from people that had done doorsteps before. You know, people like Mark Daly, for example. Um, you know, he he's a great person to kind of to you know calm you down and talk you through these situations but I suppose the things that I was kind of told you should do is, is just focus on your kind of your, your your questions your your couple of questions and not overcomplicate things so it sounds that actually sounds extremely easy you know remembering two or three questions but it was it was unbelievable how often I would like forget mm. and think oh what happens if it, what happens if they say this what happens if you say that what are you supposed to say to this but by the time you're into the confrontation, you could probably tell, you know, your your nerves are absolutely shot. Mm. Um, but once once you're actually in that discussion, you, you've been you've been working on it for months. So uh, the, those those answers just start they just start coming out. The questions start coming out, and everything that you've been investigating is all in the back of your mind anyway. So when you need it, it, it comes out. Yeah. Uh, I suppose one thing I wasn't expecting was for both the guys that were in street attraction to stand and talk for so long. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll find in a lot of doorsteps that the person just leaves. 
and yeah. you've got to put your questions to them while they're running away, you know, or getting out shot. So to, to be faced with like two people who were willing to have a kind of debate about it was, you know, not what we were expecting. Um, and also at the time, you know, I don't know if this was laid out in the film, but we, we did a doorstep with the main guy from that organization organization you know this this seduction yeah. industry boot camp place um and we we got our stuff all packed up ready to go get out of there and then we spotted the other guy uh and he was just walking down the street like oh, pull the car in get out and did the whole thing again you know and I was just like, you know, I thought I was done. <laughs> All of a sudden, I'm getting my mic turned back on. Um, but no, it was it was some experience. And and there are people like a lot of the guys and a lot of the kind of correspondents that work for Panorama. You know, they are just so good at doorsteps. Like like you say, they can go up to someone and be completely cool and just not seem to show any nerves mm -hmm. and you've got i think you've got to do doorsteps a hell of a lot to get to that stage because it is like the the biggest adrenaline rush just everything's just going full pelt it's like flight or fight mode um, I, I can imagine with these people as well to me don't seem to be i don't know the most conventional or, or even sane has there been any serious backlash as a result of of sort of shining a light on what's going on, uh, yeah, I suppose like it's not been it's not been too bad. I, you know, I, when it comes to YouTube, there there are a lot of uh, people that are invested in that seduction community who are pissed off and hate me, mm -hmm. um, and you'll see a lot of stuff on there that just it's just hateful rhetoric towards me. Um, other things have been like fake accounts, you know, pretending to be me and contacting folk I know. Um, you know, that was quite annoying. But, mm. you know, Twitter eventually shuts these things down and things go back to normal. And I suppose, you know, maybe it's it proves that you've kind of really got under yeah. their skin. I saw if, if one. It's, if it's wound them up that much, you know. Yeah, I saw one video and it was somebody responding with his own saying that the report wasn't a fair portrayal of real dating coaches making the point that he and others existed to help men who were lacking in confidence. Now, I don't even need to get your thoughts on that because first of all, we spoke about it. Second of all, I mean, if you're part of that community and, and that let's just say that the normal part of that community is reasonable and decent, then it should be up to them to be policing that. If they're not doing that job themselves, then somebody else is going to have to come in and do that because as we say, it was in the... It was in the public interest, so I just I think that's ridiculous, uh, a ridiculous claim. Yeah, and, and there'll be a, a you know a lot of a lot of people say, oh, you know that's not that's not us. We're being tarnished by you know a few you know bad apples or whatever. Yeah, but then weed yeah, them out. That's check, your responsibility. Yeah, or go, you know, you go and check their old channels, and you start you mm. think, oh, really? You know, it sounds like you know there was actually someone who'd kind of said oh it, it, blew, it blew things out of proportion and you know it was an unfair portrayal um quite an established dating coach 
Um, and, and, and when I say dating coach, I mean like the sort of person that would get invited on to like dating TV to help you with your love advice, but also mm-hmm. do a bit of this kind of pick apart stuff. And you know, I had a look on the YouTube channel, and they had a last a last minute resistance tutorial. So that's, that's... you know, you can't say someone's a bad egg, and then you're actually preaching the same dangerous rhetoric. Yeah, that was you know a quite a large part of our investigation. Mm. The I think you would have to be a robot not to have come out of that whole thing, or even now to look back on it and feel a degree of stress. Does that or would that impact you if you're doing your job unrestricted in the future? Or like, would you ever look at something and go, "Do you know what? That was a bit of a headache. I might leave that to somebody else." Or does it just encourage you to go and do it again? Because yeah, I would. I would definitely. Be, I'm. I'm. How do I put this? That that was something that was like. It's like the best. That was the best investigation I've mm. ever been involved in. And if anything, it just heightened my prior knowledge that that was the type of career I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think having had those experiences uh, makes me want to do more of that. And, and and luckily, I've had the opportunity to go back and 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 make films with BBC Disclosure. You know, we did um, a question of consent came out just as lockdown was announced, which wasn't very helpful, but. Um, you know that came out that night, and and hopefully I'll get to do more. But uh, I suppose it wasn't a, the same type of film. It wasn't quite as nerve wracking. But no, yeah, it's those experiences and getting to do that sort of program making is something I would definitely do again. I would call it effective journalism. Anyway, um, I think anybody could tell a basic story in chronological order just like I'm doing just now and pass it off as journalism, you know, just asking questions. But I think it takes a much deeper understanding. It takes a much deeper understanding of storytelling and a unique ability to frame the message to the point that it is unequivocally clear for any sane person taking it in. And that's obviously what you've managed to do. Um, Those capabilities were... Sorry, on you go. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, like, on that point, you know, that there is so many people that are kind of there as your support see in terms of like writing a script and the storytelling mm. and getting that that's like your, your, your producer and your editor and the team they just nail that so like mm. you can look into the journalism and the reporting of something but yeah that storytelling thing that, that, that's that was a, a kind of new world for me yeah when you see them when you see how it could, a, a, a film can be made from an original script to what goes out you're just like mm-hmm. in awe of what gets done there well, that, that was obviously recognised with a number of like professional awards, industry acknowledgements, uh, and obviously not least by the fact that fucking criminal action was taken by Police Scotland and the CPS. Um, but you then won the gold award for best news coverage for A Game Expose by BBC The Social at the Arias, uh, prestigious awards for audio and radio industry awards. There's obviously a lot of press coverage. As you said, it was on BBC News. It was in, across newspapers uh, up and down the country. YouTube removed the channels. At the end of the day, then, how much satisfaction does that bring, knowing that something, obviously, that you've you've identified, uh, have followed through, has had such a massive impact? It must go wider than or further than just professional pride. Yeah, I think yeah, when in the, when in the area, but you know, was you know, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't do these things. Yeah, you wouldn't do these things for awards. But that was that was a moment where I felt like, you know. I suppose when we put that early video out, 
in, in January 2019 uh, via the BBC The Social. It, it really does, you feel like you're out in a limb a little bit and you've mm -hmm. kind of put your head above the parapet and you're kind of worried, you know, are people going to latch on to this or are people going to say, you know, what's wrong with that? And you, you, you aren't ever sure how people are going to mm -hmm. react to it. And that worry kind of goes through the whole thing, the main investigation. So for there to be so much coverage when the film went out, the the 29 minute film, and then to get the award, you know, recently, it just kind of puts a you know a line under it and makes you think, oh, you know, maybe what we did there was, you know, it, it was the right thing, and it's been and it's been, I suppose, given an accolade to show that. So yeah, mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't say people do it for awards, but that was a, definitely a great moment to see such that such a long journey and such an important thing for me, something I cared a lot about and still care about to just get a bit of recognition for it was really mm -hmm. you know it was great it was a great night and in terms of other work you've uh you've been doing the unlocked podcast uh described as a weekly podcast that lifts the lid on the untold stories during lockdown quite a focus on drug use sex worth mental sex work sorry mental health issues um covering a lot of bases How, how's that been have you enjoyed it it's, it's been great and and that was another opportunity to work uh, with the social and with the investigations team at BBC Scotland. So mm -hmm. it was like getting to do, you know, what we'd done before, but in an audio and in a weekly way, you know, kind of obviously yeah. much quicker, you know yourself, you know, you've got to turn these things around yeah. pretty quick and it can be quite stressful. Um, but I love, I love audio. Um, I love podcasts. Mm -hmm. So getting Me to make too. that sort of stuff, you know, I started in radio and I still just absolutely love it, you know, you're a massive podcast fan as well, aren't you? It's like yeah, something right. told well in audio just makes you, you know, you sit in the car sometimes, you just have to stop what you're doing and just listen. I, I think and... it's the fact that it, you can go anywhere with it. Like I, I, was, uh, I was in Tesco yesterday listening to something and I'm absolutely pissing myself laughing like as I'm walking around the aisles or you could be listening to something cycling. And I think it's, it's the fact that you don't need to stop you can continue doing your thing but as you say take in the, this information or these stories can be told while you're going about your life and it's I, I don't know there's just something something even better about that that you don't have to sit down and be like right i'm going to give this my entire attention you know you can sort of multitask but uh i have i've enjoyed the podcast Definitely. it's been it's been it's been really good what's it like what is it like making podcasts for the bbc because i've got two perceptions one that it would be really restricted because the commissioning process seems to be a bit of a a long-winded um, process. It takes forever. Um, I feel like there would be a bit of restriction because it's a BBC. You can't say this. You can't say that. But then I think you've got all these resources at your disposal. Like, how can you can you genuinely say what you think, or do you need to toe the party line a wee bit? Yeah, well, you you have to um, you, you you have to be completely balanced and um, let the people you're interviewing tell the story. Mm. Um, which, you know, I, I think a lot of people would find difficult. Um, but I think it does come, that the longer you work at the BBC, the more kind of, uh, the, the more, why is it, how do I put this? You start to get a lot more comfortable about your role in that process. Now, I'm not, mm. I've not been a reporter, you know, or a presenter for that matter for, for, long enough to really know quite how difficult it is to do that day in, day out and be hosting radio shows. But I think you do get yourself in a frame of mind where 
you've just got to you, you abide by the guidelines and you tell your story that way. Now, yeah, things might get restrictive every now and then, but like you say, if you if you get it right, then I, I suppose you, you can you can develop a lot of trust if people know it's been through that kind of rigorous process. Mm -hmm. And um, like you say, if it's going out. Um, on the BBC, sometimes you can get you know a bit behind it. That's not always the case, but you know, about you're you're right. It's you're you're held to a lot more, um, you know, rules and restrictions. And you might hear podcasts, you know, for example, uh, say a, a, an investigative podcast like Bellingcat MH17, mm -hmm. which is an amazing podcast. They might not need to say kind of write your replies as much as maybe a BBC podcast would, like mm. The Missing Crypto Queen, you will get a kind of a signpost a lot a lot of the way through saying, you know, this is denied and this is what this person says. But I, I honestly think it's just, it's good, it's good practice. And if you can get used to, to making it, making that sort of content, then, you know, it, it helps at the end. But there is definitely a way there's definitely a different way of making things with the BBC mm -hmm. um, and there is a lot of checks to do before you, you can do an investigation. Like like I say, before going into something like undercover work or anything like that, you have to do so much due diligence and research and um, showing of evidence before you get to do something. But at the end of the day, if things go wrong, then... You, you can show your workings and all the things that you've had to do in order to yeah. get to publication. But, then, you know, there's there's positives and negatives to, yeah, to all these things, isn't it? The same way, anything. And in terms of things that are coming up in the future, is there anything that you, that you maybe have identified that you'd like to work on or is it just as it comes? And, and if there is, is there anything you're able to talk about or is it all top secret? Um, at, at the moment, uh, things have all kind of been put on pause with... Um, the lockdown and you know we've finished series one of Unlocked now mm -hmm. so at the moment it's quite a like a bit of a, a limbo you know I'm I'm back working at, at the social and just looking for the next thing really so um, I've not got anything yet but keeping mm. an eye out <laughs> I suppose as you've done the, the series one of Unlocked as how people are adjusting to lockdown it seems to me that the most natural progression is how people will be adjusting to lockdown lifting because I, for one, I prefer it when there's nobody in the streets. I prefer it quiet. And it's going to be quite, I think it's going like, do you know what I mean? Like I'm seeing people, I'm like, nah, fuck off. Like I liked it when there was just nobody here. <laughs> and, uh, and like, you know, it's it's like, what is it? What Like a quarter of a year that we've all spent kind of in this strange existence. And I think there'll be people who will have those like readjustment issues again going back to normal it's like we've just we've just acclimatized and then you're told right you can go back out and you're like oh, fuck shit i'm not ready <laughs> i know what you mean and and how, how will i feel about sitting you know I, I love going to my local and having a pint and watching the football um i don't know i don't know when that'll feel comfortable again mm. it might be fine but you know like like you say it's kind of i've kind of adjusted to this life i'd say like I'm going for like big cycles more. Um, Mate, that's all I do. You know, just I, go cycling. It's it's great. Go going cycling and uh, going for the occasional run. And 
meeting socially distant in the park has actually become quite a good thing enjoying that it's obviously mm. been shite weather recently but um yeah i think i, I also recognize that this is like I, I don't know how pubs and clubs are going to adapt i know some are already looking at ways how to do it or have already come up with plans but it's just it's a it's hard to think about sitting in a pub soon isn't it I no, I, I personally don't really fancy it. Like if if it was back to normal, I would maybe enjoy it. I um I don't mean to to badmouth the industry, and I'm open to being corrected. But it seems to me that it's going to be like, or I was told that you would have a ninety minute block if you were to book into a pub. Like you have to book on an app, and then you get ninety minutes, and you need to vacate to let the next people in. I just think I am not going to the pub for ninety minutes. Like I'd rather just go and sit around somebody's back. Or just go and do don't do anything. Um, probably would say what that about actually. Hundred eighty minutes. You could double book. Uh, aye, but I feel like they'll be wise to that because if it's like <laughs> you get ninety minutes and then you so if you, if I say no no look I'll be booked it on somebody else's app they'll be like aye mate but I've just seen you sitting here tanning pints like the, the last ninety minutes like get to fuck there's a queue. And then you can I'd... have your fake tash and glasses on at that point. <laughs> I know. Or you could do like that thing where kids try to sneak into an overage film in the cinema, so like three of them go on their shoulders wearing a big trench coat. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, no, we've not been, what are you talking about? We've not been here. I'm sure, I'm sure it'll work. We'll see. Um, if anybody wants to find you on social media, by the way, where can they Where can they get you? I'm sure they'll be interested in your work after this chat. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on uh, Twitter, um, at Miles Bonner, and it's Miles with a Y and uh, Bonner with an A, and yeah, that's that's what I use the most. To be mm-hmm. honest, loved I love Twitter, so yeah, I'm there. It has its downsides, but it is a bit of fun, I suppose. Um, I would I, I would encourage anybody if you haven't seen the obviously the panorama thing we we're talking about, you'll find it somewhere. I mean, you're all big boys and girls, just go and search for it, and you'll find it. The the other videos are on YouTube. Um, definitely an interesting watch and. Uh, stay away from pickup artists, I suppose. Or don't don't pay them for for training, mate. Thanks very much for for this chat. I've really enjoyed it. Aye, me too. Thanks again for having me on. It's good to ah. finally speak to you. I know, I know. Pleasure. I hope hopefully next time I see you or when I see you will be, I don't know, in normal circumstances. But I've been saying that to people for months, and we don't seem to be any fucking closer <laughs> yet. So, so I suppose we can only hope. But aye, thanks again, mate, for coming on. No worries. Pleasure. Cheers, mate. Leathered was written, recorded and produced by Sean McDonald in association with The Big Light. Music and post-production by Brian McAlpine and for more information go to thebiglight.com. From The Big Light Studio.